Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Recent innovation in train-breaking technology could prevent or reduce the scope of disasters like these. Unfortunately, the railroad industry has aggressively lobbied against mandates that they invest in the new brakes. This means railroads that are less safe for workers, communities, and the environment. The Biden administration is facing growing criticism after a massive trail derailment, train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, blanketed the town with a toxic brew of spilled chemicals and gases, fouling the air, polluting waterways, killing thousands of fish. We'll look at how corporate greed is at the center of the bomb train catastrophe. Then we speak to Jim Cavallaro, the prominent human rights attorney. Last week, the Biden administration nominated him for a top human rights post, then withdrew the nomination in part due to his criticism of Israel's human rights record. On Monday, an outlet published tweets of mine, older tweets, where I recognize the situation in Israel and Palestine as constituting the crime of apartheid, and in which I question the role of APAC funding in U.S politics. On Tuesday, I was informed that my candidacy had been withdrawn because of my views on Israel and Palestine. And we'll speak to the Brazilian indigenous leader, Davi Copanawa Yanomami, about why he supports prosecuting former President Jair Bolsonaro for committing genocide against the Yanomami people in the Amazon. The Minister of Justice wants to prosecute him because of the way in which my Yanomami people have been mistreated and they have allowed disease to come in. They've allowed us to die. They've allowed 577 of our children to die. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukraine's president has ruled out trading territory for peace as part of any negotiated settlement with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. President Volodymyr Zelensky made the remarks in an interview with the BBC. Any territorial compromise would make us weaker as a state. It's not about compromise itself. Why would we be afraid of that? We have millions of compromises in life every day. The question is, with whom? With Putin? No, because there's no trust. Ukraine's military says it shot down 16 of 36 Russian missiles fired at targets across Ukraine Thursday, including its largest oil refinery, which reportedly sustained damage. Meanwhile, Russia's intensified ground attacks along the front in southern and eastern Ukraine in a spring offensive launched just ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. 
The United Nations is appealing to donors for $1 billion to scale up relief operations in Turkey, where the death toll from this month's massive earthquakes has topped 38,000. Nearly 6,000 others have been confirmed dead in Syria, where the U.N. is appealing for an additional $400 million for humanitarian assistance. Meanwhile, there's growing alarm over plans by the World Food Program to slash aid to hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees who fled ethnic cleansing and genocide in Burma. The U.N. agency says they'll be forced to cut rations to Rohingya living in camps in Bangladesh due to a severe funding shortfall. In a statement, the humanitarian group Save the Children said Rohingya children and their families are at breaking point and need no more support, not less. President Biden's made his first formal comments about the U.S. military's downing of four objects flying over North America earlier this month. Biden said the first shot down was a Chinese surveillance balloon that violated U.S. sovereignty, something he called unacceptable, but that the other three were not believed related to surveillance by a foreign power. Biden said Thursday he planned to speak with President, the Chinese President Xi Jinping, about the surveillance balloon. This episode underscores the importance of maintaining open lines of communication between our diplomats and our military professionals. A possible source for one of the yet-to-be-identified objects is the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade. The hobbyist club believes one of its $12 inflatable balloons may have been shot down by a Lockheed Martin F-22 firing a $400,000 Sidewinder missile over Canada's Yukon Territory on February 11th. Israel's Knesset has passed a law allowing the government to revoke the citizenship or residency of Palestinians determined to have committed what Israel calls acts of terror. The new law exclusively targets Palestinians in Israel and occupied East Jerusalem, allowing them to be deported to the occupied West Bank and Gaza. Legal experts say such deportations would constitute an act of forcible transfer, which is a war crime. The United Nations Security Council is expected to vote next week on a Palestinian-backed resolution demanding an immediate halt to all Israeli settlement activities and condemning the annexation of illegal settlements and outposts. Diplomats told reporters the U.S. is seeking to replace the resolution with a weaker statement. In Washington, State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel declined to say if the U.S. would veto the resolution. The introduction of this resolution uh, is unhelpful in supporting the conditions necessary to advance negotiations for a two-state solution. In Georgia, the special grand jury investigating attempts by President Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election determined at least one witness committed perjury during the testimony. That revelation came as part of a small five-page excerpt of the grand jury report made public Thursday, though it's not clear who the panel believes should be charged with crimes other than perjury or which Georgia laws may have been violated. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis said last month decisions about whom to prosecute are imminent. The White House dismissed Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley's call for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75. Haley made the remark in Charleston, South Carolina, Wednesday during her first campaign rally since announcing her 2024 presidential bid. It's seen as an attack on both 80-year-old Biden and her primary challenger, 76-year-old Donald Trump. Nikki Haley also vowed to crack down on immigration and relegate, quote, communist China to the ash heap of history, unquote. 
Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman is seeking inpatient treatment for clinical depression at Walter Reed Hospital, his office announced. Senate Democrats rallied around their colleague, with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer tweeting, happy to hear Senator Fetterman is getting the help he needs and deserves. Millions of Americans, like John, struggle with depression each day, unquote. The freshman senator from Pennsylvania has suffered a number of health challenges recently. Last week, he was briefly hospitalized after feeling lightheaded during a Senate retreat. He was elected as U.S. senator in November, six months after suffering a life-threatening stroke. In Britain, Labour Party leader Keir Starmer has barred former Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn from running for re-election as a Labour candidate. Corbyn slammed the move as an attack on democracy. Corbyn has been a member of parliament since 1983 and currently serves as an independent. To see our interview with MP Jeremy Corbyn and his comments on Keir Starmer, go to democracynow.org. Nicola Sturgeon has announced she's stepping down as First Minister of Scotland. Sturgeon's the first woman to hold the post as well as the first woman to lead the Scottish National Party. Essentially, I've been trying to answer two questions. Is carrying on right for me? And more importantly, is me carrying on right for the country, for my party and for the independence cause I have devoted my life to? Sturgeon will stay in her role until a successor is appointed. Her resignation comes amid stark divisions over Scottish independence. In November, the British Supreme Court ruled Scotland cannot hold another independence referendum without the green light from the British government. The U.K. government also recently vetoed a Scottish bill that would make it easier for people to change their legal gender. Sturgeon condemned the veto as a full frontal attack on the Scottish Parliament. Over 200 New York Times contributors have published an open letter criticizing the Times' recent coverage of stories involving transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people, in particular concerning medical issues. The letter says Republican lawmakers have cited the Times' coverage to justify bans on gender-affirming care for youth. In response, the top editor of The New York Times Thursday defended the paper's coverage of trans issues, warning journalists that such public criticism will, quote, not be tolerated. In Michigan, the train operated by Norfolk Southern derailed on Thursday in Van Buren Township, 30 miles west of Detroit, causing more than two dozen rail cars to pile up and triggering fears of a toxic release. Local authorities reported one rail car contained liquid chlorine, a highly corrosive chemical. Norfolk Southern said no hazardous materials spilled. The crash came as Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan visited East Palestine, Ohio, to meet with residents. Residents affected by this month's crash of a Norfolk Southern train carrying vinyl chloride and other toxic and carcinogenic chemicals, which were released in a so-called controlled burn that sent a toxic mushroom cloud high into the air. We'll get the latest on that story after headlines. And Tesla has recalled more than 360,000 electric vehicles over the risks posed by their self-driving software. 
The recall follows several high-profile accidents, including an eight-car pileup on the San Francisco Bay Bridge last November, triggered when a self-driving Tesla Model S abruptly changed lanes and rapidly applied its brakes. Nine people were injured, including a two-year-old child. On Thursday, Democratic Senator Ed Markey tweeted, Tesla's recall is long overdue, adding, quote, we've been sounding the alarm on the critical flaws in Tesla's software and its misleading advertising for years. The National Highway Transportation Safety Administration must continue to protect the public against these safety risks, and Tesla must stop overstating the capabilities of its vehicles, unquote. Meanwhile, Tesla workers at a factory in Buffalo, New York, have filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, saying Tesla managers fired more than 30 people this week after they announced their intention to form what would be the company's first U.S.-based labor union. And here in New York, the state Senate has rejected Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul's nominee to become the state's top judge. Hector LaSalle came under fire from unions, as well as civil rights, immigrant rights and reproductive rights groups. He deposed that had opposed LaSalle's nomination, citing what they described as his anti-labor and anti-abortion rulings. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the failures that led to the massive train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, that blanketed the town with a toxic brew of spilled chemicals and gases, fouling the air, polluting waterways, killing thousands of fish and frogs. Residents are suffering ailments ranging from respiratory distress, sore throats, burning eyes and rashes, all with unknown long-term consequences. Many say they don't trust officials who are telling them it's safe to return home. We have to have proper testing. We cannot get a two and a two, three, and then your papers say one. You're not satisfied with the testing that's been done at your house? No, and you're going to smell it as soon as you go into my house. I don't feel safe taking my kids in, in the town, especially to the house. Like my neighbor right across the street from me literally got diagnosed yesterday with chemical pneumonia. What what does the government do? Whose responsibility is it? Because I, I'm not quite sure that the... Um, you know, Norfolk Southern is really doing much. Residents of East Palestine met Thursday with the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Michael Regan, as he visited impacted areas and gave an update on air and water testing. Boots on the ground, leading robust air quality testing, including the advanced technological aspect plane and a mobile analytical laboratory in and around East Palestine. Since the fire went out, EPA air monitoring has not detected any levels of health concern in the community that are attributed to the, to the train derailment. As it relates to water, EPA is supporting Ohio and the local government in determining what impacts the spill has had on surface and groundwater and ensuring that the derailment has not had an effect on drinking water supplies. The two-mile-long freight train that derailed in East Palestine was operated by the railroad giant Norfolk Southern. It's been called a bomb train since its 141 cars included tankers that can hold up to 32,000 gallons each of highly flammable toxic chemicals. 
In addition to the spill, an out-of-control fire raged for days, followed by a so-called controlled burn of the train's most toxic cargo, releasing a huge mushroom cloud of fire and smoke. This catastrophe could have been prevented had it not been for lax regulation and the massive lobbying power of corporations like Norfolk Southern. Secretary of Transportation Bo Pete Buttigieg claimed in a tweet, we're constrained by law on some areas of rail regulation, like the breaking rule withdrawn by the Trump administration in 2018 because of a law passed by Congress in 2015. Meanwhile, critics say Buttigieg could use his existing rulemaking authority to expand the definition of a high-hazard flammable train to cover trains like the one in Ohio. This comes as the Biden administration is siding with Norfolk Southern in a case against a former rail worker now pending before the Supreme Court that could allow corporations to restrict where people, including the victims of the disaster in East Palestine, can file lawsuits against them. More than 12,000 trains carry hazardous materials across the United States each day. And on Thursday, another Norfolk Southern train carrying hazardous materials derailed outside of Detroit. For more, we're joined by Matthew Cunningham Cook, researcher and writer for The Lever, who's part of a team following all of this very closely. Matthew, welcome back to Democracy Now! I mean, there is so much to ask you about right now. First of all, I don't know if people realize this train in East Palestine— that was carrying chemicals like vinyl chloride that, when um, exploded, um, become phosgene, that World War I uh, chemical weapon. This train was two miles long. Why don't you start there? Yeah, I, trains have been getting longer and longer, uh, and it's occurring at the same time that the railroad workforce is getting smaller and smaller. And these were exactly the concerns that the rail unions raised last year with the Biden administration, with railroads, with the public surrounding their contract negotiations and the need for paid sick leave. So that's the that's the broader context. Uh, and then there's the fact that the industry was successful in reducing the scope of this uh, high hazard flammable train uh, definition. Uh, and they've been successful at resisting the widespread implementation of revolutionary new braking technology uh, called electronically controlled pneumatic braking. Over 15 years old, the railroads initially championed these new brakes. Uh, but once they figured out the cost, um, even though it was only $3 billion, so that's uh, less than uh, 3% of the amount that the railroads have spent on stock buybacks in the last decade, um, uh, they lobbied hard against any rules that would mandate uh, their implementation. And that's a huge problem because Right now, railroads use 1868 uh, technology, technology from 1868 uh, to break trains, and it's basically uh, a ricochet effect. So the, the engine breaks, and then the first car breaks, and then the second car breaks, and then the third car breaks, uh, which means that the, the train doesn't all stop at the same time. What that does is when when heavier train cars uh, bump into lighter train cars, which is very common because they're not properly ordering the train cars because of the massive cutbacks in the railroad workforce, 
that creates what's called in-train forces, which destabilize and derail trains. And Railroad Workers United, this cross-union advocacy group of railroad workers, has said that that almost certainly played a significant role in the derailment here on top of the issues with with the axle that was on fire. Um, So, yeah, you know, and then Norfolk Southern in particular really seems like it has one of the worst safety records uh, on the rails. Uh, There's been repeated incidents in Ohio of Norfolk Southern derailments. They had two derailments last year that they still haven't picked up the costs for, even though they uh, explicitly pledged that they would. And, you know, and unfortunately, you know, you really have a a transportation secretary that appears resistant to taking action. So uh, so let's talk about what uh, Buttigieg could do. Let's talk about what President Biden could do, because it's a very interesting history where um, Mm -hmm. you have these safety features that under the Obama administration, they were going into effect. Well, many years later, actually, in 2023. Um, Yes. Explain what happened under Trump, the role of South Dakota Republican Senator John Thune, and then in reversing all of this, the campaign contributions of Norfolk Southern, six what million dollars to Republican campaigns, and then what Biden and Buttigieg could do. Yeah. So, yes, the Obama administration proposed rules that would expand the use of this ECP breaking technology. Uh, They were not expansive enough to cover the type of train uh, that derailed in Ohio, um, but they would have gone significantly further towards implementing it across the industry. So right now, only Amtrak, most Amtrak trains use this breaking technology and then trains that transport nuclear waste are required to use uh, this technology as well. Uh, The railroad industry funneled, yes, uh, over $6 million uh, into uh, Senate Republicans' uh, campaigns in 2016. uh, uh, John Thune was one of the top, who was at the time the chairman of the the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee, uh, was one of the highest recipients of railroad industry cash. He opposed this rulemaking. The Trump administration under Elaine Chao, uh, who was the Secretary of Transportation, who's the wife of uh, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, uh, rolled back uh, the Obama administration's very modest rules to expand this breaking technology. And then once Biden and Buttigieg uh, Uh, Even though uh, rail unions, uh, public safety advocates, environmental groups have advocated the expansion of uh, rail safety rules, uh, they have yet to take uh, substantive action uh, so far. So it's it's unfortunate um, and it's unclear why exactly that's the case. And then Michael Regan, the EPA chief, uh, going yesterday, two weeks after this catastrophe took place, to get an earful from residents. Now, we should say that was a day after the town hall meeting where Norfolk Southern refused to show up, saying they were afraid their uh, own um, representatives would be in danger, to which many residents said, you're concerned about them being in danger? What about us? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a real kind of question as to whether or not the EPA is um, to whether or not the EPA is uh, is really at monitoring this situation on the ground uh, in a in a complete way. Um, that's a that's a real question. At this point, we know that the EPA really uh, fell down on the job uh, in a in a really significant way uh, after 9/11. We know that the EPA uh, didn't do the best that they could to protect residents in Flint. So, yeah, if I was a resident of East Palestine, I would really have some real questions as to how effectively the EPA was protecting me at this point. Now, talk about what. Uh Norfolk Southern faces. If years ago, a crash in North Carolina, I believe something like nine people died. Many were injured, ultimately paid something like, what, $4 million? Uh, they were fined. Um, talk about what they face and um, the lawsuits that are beginning right now and what they could be forced to—what did they promise, a million dollars to the town right now? Yeah, right now they've said they've already distributed over a million dollars um, to uh, the town. Um, yeah, they're facing class action lawsuits, um, but unfortunately, you know what we know is that is that Depar Department of Transportation fines are and Federal Railroad Administration fines are very limited, uh, and so the question of kind of real accountability is an open one, you know? And I think that what Alan Shaw, the CEO of Norfolk Southern, I think he really sees uh, his core constituency uh, as not the public, but his shareholders. And unfortunately, you know, the way that our society works is that it's just about the next quarterly earnings report, how much money you can extract out of the infrastructure you already own so that you can buy back more of your stock, so that you can pay more dividends, so that you can pay higher executive compensation, uh, and that, you know, fines and class action lawsuits, they're ultimately a drop in the bucket uh, compared to uh, the extraordinary profits that these railroads uh, collect from their you know, workforce that's overworked and uh, and in large part burnt out and infrastructure that is uh, falling apart uh, and is not being properly maintained, even though it's owned directly by the railroads. And talk about the recent ruling by Congress, supported by President Biden, that he signed off on to stop a rail strike. How does that play in here? Yeah, I mean, what we know is that um, when you have uh, a, a lack of redundancy in workforces when you have workers who are away from home uh, for weeks at a time, uh, when you have uh, difficulty in filling thousands of vacant positions because the jobs just aren't good enough. You know, 30 years ago, these were great jobs. Uh, that's just not the case today, uh, working harder and harder than ever before in conditions that are terrible. You know, there's tons of engines that don't have any heat at all. And when you have that situation, you're going to have safety issues. And then even beyond that, Freight Waves, a trade publication reported yesterday that the five um, senior uh, employees who were charged with preventing derailments uh, 
have all left. All of those positions have left in the last, uh, have been eliminated effectively in the last decade at Norfolk Southern. So, yeah, you know, this is, you know, what we know is that the rail unions, the rail workers have been championing common sense safety improvements. The rail unions have been very active advocating for this breaking technology. The contract proposals that the rail unions put forth around paid sick leave, around pay, around benefits would help the railroads recruit and retain qualified employees uh, while they're spending uh, billions and billions of dollars on on stock buybacks while they're paying their executives 10, 15, 20 million dollars a year. Uh, and unfortunately, there's really, uh, you know, it really just seems like the Biden administration just tried to split the difference. It's like, OK, well, the um, the railroads are proposing this and the unions are proposing this. So we'll just kind of split the baby in half when really, you know, what the rail unions were proposing was about kind of acknowledging decades and decades of deregulation, decades and decades of assaults on workers. The Trump administration's organized, coordinated assault on any effective regulation of railroads and the fact that workers just needed to MacGyver any response to that aggressive, dangerous, deregulatory agenda. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, yeah, you know, that's that's the final thing is that the Biden administration really didn't seem to take what these over 100,000 rail workers were saying uh, about the adequacy of this proposed uh, contract really seriously. Matthew, and instead, um, yeah. let me ask you about Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, who sent a letter to Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw criticizing the so-called controlled explosion, right? You have the explosion, it releases chemicals, um, and then you have that control, so-called controlled burn. The letter says, prioritizing an accelerated and arbitrary timeline to reopen the rail line injected unnecessary risk and created confusion. Um, yes. You also have, of course, the governor of Ohio, the state where this catastrophe took place, Mike DeWine, assess his response as well. Yeah, so we're digging into this particular question right now about how exactly uh, this controlled release happened. So I asked Governor DeWine, did you consult with other uh, experts uh, about whether or not this controlled release made sense prior to approving Norfolk Southern's request for a controlled release. And his answer was, well, the Pentagon helped us with modeling. Uh, and then his administration has refused to answer any other questions from uh, the lever about, uh, about the controlled release. Uh, we're digging into it now. I think it's a very good question. I think Governor Shapiro is asking the right set of questions. Uh, on this matter, and we're, we're going to continue digging into it. What we do know is that, uh, and we have a, a, an article that will be coming out either today or Monday about this, that looks at the DeWine administration's response to this, uh, looks at the DeWine administration's connections to Norfolk Southern, uh, and, and we, we really hope that we can, we, we're definitely going to continue down this path of, of looking into why exactly this controlled release happened and uh, 
you know, which in and of itself is is a propagandistic term. You know, it was a massive chemical burn. It wasn't really a controlled release. Um, and let's remember uh, that they didn't even release Norfolk Southern what the chemicals were, carcinogenic benzene, vinyl chloride, uh, that is phosgene was a chemical weapon in World War One yes. for more than a week after the um, derailment happened. What was it right in the middle of uh, uh, on the day of um, of of the of football. Yes. Yeah. Of and, the and Super Bowl. And, yeah. You know, and, and these, you know, as as folks, you know, any chemical expert will tell you also when these chemicals interact with each other, they can, you know, create new chemicals, <laughs> you know. And so and that modeling has not been released about how exactly this interacts with other chemicals that are naturally occurring in the environment with other chemicals that were on the railroad that were released. We don't know. We don't know what the effect was at all. And finally, um, we haven't even mentioned uh, the, um, the News Nation reporter, Evan Lambert, who's yeah. with National Association of Black Journalists and News Nation, um, arrested, taken down on the ground as he reported from a DeWine news conference. Yes. Yeah, no, I was saying on another media appearance that it, you know, it reminds me of my other experiences with uh, logistics reporting is that the logistics system in the U.S. is highly militarized. Uh, the railroads have the only fully privatized police force in the country. Uh, in this case, the reporter got into an argument with uh, the state's adjutant general, the head of the National Guard, and it really appears like you know, that argument immediately devolved into a fairly violent uh, arrest of a reporter. As far as I understand, the last time I checked, those charges against uh, Evan Lambert, this reporter for disorderly conduct, still haven't been dropped. I think they have been dismissed. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, Matthew Cunningham Cook, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Researcher and writer for The Lever. We're going to link to the pieces of The Lever that's done an extraordinary job exposing what's going on in East Palestine, Ohio. Well, from East Palestine to Palestine. Next up, we speak with Jim Cavallaro, the prominent human rights attorney. Last week, the Biden administration nominated him for a top human rights post and withdrew the nomination um, due in part to his criticism of Israel's human rights record. Back in less than 30 seconds. Wasteland by Terry Cloth Mother. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Leaders in the human rights world are criticizing the Biden administration for withdrawing the nomination of a prominent human rights attorney from a post over the attorney's past comments criticizing Israel. Last Friday, the State Department announced the nomination of James Cavallaro to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. He'd previously served on the commission from 2014 to 2017, including a period as its president. This was all during the Obama administration. The 
Obama-Biden administration. Cavallaro is a widely respected human rights attorney, co-founder and executive director of the University Network for Human Rights. Earlier this week, the State Department withdrew Cavallaro's nomination after reports emerged he described Israel as an apartheid state and had criticized House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries' close ties to APEC the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. This is State Department spokesperson Ned Price speaking Tuesday. His statements clearly do not reflect U.S. policy. Uh, they are not a reflection of what we believe, uh, and uh, they are uh, inappropriate, to say the least. Uh, we have decided to withdraw our nomination of this individual uh, from uh, uh, to, to withdraw his nomination to serve on the Inter-American Inter Commission on Human Rights. The Biden administration's decision to withdraw James Cavallaro's nomination has sparked outrage within the human rights community. Agnes Calamar, the secretary general of Amnesty International, condemned what she called a, quote, state-driven attack on a brilliant human rights lawyer because of his view on Israel apartheid. She went on to say, quote, the U.S. government has not engaged with the legal and empirical basis of positions on Israel apartheid. Instead, it's censoring, shutting down debates and threatening, she said. Omar Shakir, who is the Israel and Palestine director of Human Rights Watch, said the move, quote, suggests that for the State Department, believing that Palestinians deserve basic rights disqualifies one from serving on a human rights body, shameful and yet U.S. foreign policy in a nutshell, he said. James Cavallaro has become just the latest figure to lose or risk losing a position due to his criticism of Israel. Last year, the dean at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government vetoed a fellowship for former Human Rights Watch executive director Kenneth Roth over his criticism of Israel's human rights record. Under public pressure, Harvard recently reversed its decision, and Ken Roth is at Harvard Kennedy School now. We're joined now by James Cavallaro in Los Angeles, where he's visiting professor at the UCLA School of Law, also teaches human rights at Wesleyan University. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Jim. Thanks so much for being with us. Can you explain what happened? First, they're praising you, and then they are withdrawing your nomination from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights that you had previously served as president of. Yeah, it really was quite a turn of events, and, and many thanks for having me on, on your program, Amy. So, on Friday, State Department publicly announced that they had chosen me after an internal process to be the U.S. national candidate to serve as an independent expert. And let me underscore that. It's quite important. As an independent expert on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And as you noted, I had the privilege of serving on the Inter-American Commission in the past as a result of the nomination of the then Obama-Biden administration. So on Friday, they issue a statement. They talk about my background, my knowledge of Latin America, my fluency in other languages, et cetera, all factors in their choosing me to be the candidate. That's Friday. On Monday, uh, I'm contacted by a, a reporter uh, for a, a small outlet who has gone through my Twitter account and pulled up tweets of mine critical of Israeli governmental policies that amount to apartheid and also critical of the role of money in politics, in particular through APAC and its donations to candidates, who then in turn, unfortunately, I would say provide cover or reduce or eliminate any oversight by the United States government that contributes $4 billion a year to Israel of its human rights record. 
As a result of those tweets, there's some internal uh, debate within state and maybe above state. This is, again, on Monday, the journalist contacts me, contacts State Department, publishes an article, I think, Monday afternoon. On Tuesday morning, uh, I'm called by folks at the State Department and then by the ambassador to the Organization of American States and informed that the State Department is withdrawing my nomination. And it, it, it's made clear to me that it's because of, of, the, of the tweets and the statements that you indicated about my characterization of the situation in, in Israel and Palestine as apartheid and the critique of the role of APAC funding in U.S. politics. Let me underscore two things, if I could, Amy. First, the role of a commissioner on the Inter-American Commission is not, is not, as representative of the United States, if you're a U.S. national, or representative of Mexico, if you're a Mexican national, and so forth for the states of the Americas. It's as an independent expert. The reason why they chose me is because for three-plus decades, I have been an independent analyst expert. I've documented human rights primarily in Latin America, but also in other parts of the world, including Israel and Palestine. That's the first important point. And, and the second important point is that the decision here, what, what it in effect does is it requires loyalty to a U.S. position on what's happening in Israel and Palestine that is totally out of sync with what every major human rights organization has said. But notwithstanding it being out of sync, it is now in effect a requirement, not just for service within the U.S. government, but for service as an independent expert. And the last thing I would say is my views, based on my observation, my visits to Israel and Palestine are entirely consistent with the views of Ken Roth, who was on your program when his fellowship was rescinded by the Kennedy School and then reversed, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the leading Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, Al-Haq, the Harvard Human Rights Program, and others who have documented what a human rights activist and practitioner and scholar and expert does is document conditions, compare those conditions to international human rights standards, and call out violations. And you can't pick and choose states. Nobody gets a free pass. The U.S. doesn't get a free pass. Israel doesn't get a free pass. The Palestinian Authority doesn't get a free pass. Egypt, you could go on. No one gets a free pass. That's human rights documentation. That's what it has to be. You mentioned Ken Roth, the former executive director at Human Rights Watch for almost 30 years. He tweeted about your case, saying, quote, Biden's dropping of a candidate for a Latin American human rights post because he criticizes the Israeli government's apartheid, a completely mainstream position for any human rights defender, suggests that only Israeli apologists are acceptable, Roth said. And again, as you said, then we did the last month, the Harvard Kennedy School restored um, Ken Roth's fellow after initially rescinding it over his criticism of Israeli human rights abuses. He appeared on Democracy Now! to warn against the chilling effect of Harvard's initial decision. This is a very serious problem. I mean, it's not just a problem for me personally. This is not, you know, impeding my career in a significant way. But I think about, you know, first of all, the younger academics who don't have, you know, the visibility that I do, who are going to take from this lesson the view that if you touch Israel, if you criticize Israel, that can be a career-killing move. You'll get canceled. And that's a disastrous signal to send. 
to see that whole interview, you can go to democracynow.org. And again, he's now at the Harvard Kennedy School because there was such international outcry. Harvard caved and reoffered him the the um, position. But now I want to ask you, Jim Cavallaro, um, about Sarah Margon, who was nominated to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. Then she came under intense criticism from Senate Republicans, most notably Jim Risch of, Oha of Idaho, for passing tweets purportedly showing she supported BDS, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Can you respond to that? Yeah, let me first say that that Ken made an interesting point about young academics. We're seeing right now uh, the unfair pressures that uh, Professor Lara Sheehy is suffering at George Washington University uh, because of her defense of the rights of Palestinians. She's facing, I think, spurious accusations and she's under a significant amount of pressure. So let me just say that what Ken is talking about is quite real. And I, like Ken, Ken perhaps more because of his stature in the field of human rights, I have a platform. I have associations with leading institutions, Wesleyan University. I teach at Yale Law School. I teach at UCLA. I teach at Columbia Law School. And You're still, a this has been a really difficult law. experience. Long-time professor at Stanford Law School. So what do you do yeah. now? I mean, yeah. again— yeah. Yes, this... I also—I'm sorry. I also taught at Harvard and Stanford Law Schools. Thank you. So— what, The other—I'm sorry, Amy. The other question you had was about Sarah Morgan, no? Yes. So I'm sorry, but to, just to complete with her, you have a situation where, again, her— positions, her stated positions, working for Human Rights Watch on Israel and Palestine don't square with U.S. foreign policy, which again is out of line. The view of the United States is a non-mainstream view. It is an extreme view. It is not the majority view of those who have documented conditions in Israel and Palestine. And it's probably worth flagging here, if I could, what we're talking about. There's a legal definition of apartheid. It's domination by one group, one racial group or ethnic group over another. And that is quite clear in terms of land confiscations, in terms of expansions of settlements, in terms of the building permits that are denied to Palestinians, voting rights that are denied to Palestinians, freedom of movement that is denied to Palestinians, which highway you could be on. You can't be on them if you're Palestinian. You can't get a building permit. Uh, the situation in Gaza, et cetera, et cetera. Human Rights Watch put out a dense report documenting this. So did Amnesty. Uh, so have other groups. But with Sarah Morgan, her position was to serve in the within state, but with a focus on human rights. That person should be a human rights expert. That's problematic when there's a litmus test on, on Israel and Palestine, which is not consistent with human rights, which is required in order to serve. It's honestly even more concerning when it's a litmus test as well to serve as an independent expert. I would not have represented the United States government. And I would have had absolutely no remit over Israel and Palestine. The Inter-American Commission oversees human rights in the Western Hemisphere. That's the other hemisphere, Israel and Palestine. So it, the expansion, unfortunately, of the areas in which one has to abide by U.S. policy, even as a human rights activist, even in Latin America, is really, really concerning.
Well, we're going to continue to follow this. Uh, Jim Cavallaro, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Professor at Wesleyan, visiting professor at UCLA School of Law. Before that, taught at Harvard, at Stanford Law School for many years. The Biden administration just withdrew his nomination to serve on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which he already served on from 2014 to 2017 and was president of for a period of that time. Next up, we speak with the Brazilian indigenous leader, um, uh, about Lula's trip to Washington and Bolsonaro committing genocide in the Amazon. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodsman. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva was in Washington last week meeting with President Biden, talking about the climate crisis and preserving the Amazon. The meeting came just over a month after supporters of Brazil's former leader, Jair Bolsonaro, attempted a coup shortly after Lula's inauguration. This week, Bolsonaro announced he plans to return to Brazil to lead the opposition. Last week, I spoke to Davi Kopanawa Yanomami, a leader and shaman for the Yanomami people, one of the largest indigenous tribes in Brazil, while he was in Washington, D.C., while Lula was meeting with Biden. The Brazilian government recently expelled thousands of illegal gold miners from Yanomami land. In January, Lula visited with the Yanomami people and accused Bolsonaro's government of committing genocide. I asked Davi Kopanawa Yanomami about Lula and the plight of the Yanomami people. Hey, um... The people from the city, the non-indigenous society, are listening to what I have to say. You asked me, what does President Lula represent? For me, my people, the indigenous people of Brazil, he has thought about us. He's thought about how to resolve the problems that we've been facing for so many years. For me, Lula is a positive person. He's like a friend. He's like a friend of the forest peoples. He wants to save the life of my Yanomami people and to save the lives of our rivers, our forest. He is a, a very good thinker. He has planned thinking. He has promised to remove the miners from the Yanomami territory. He has also promised to minimize the deforestation of the Amazon forest. So he is following through on his word. He is the only president who has been elected on the ticket of helping the forest peoples, helping the indigenous people of Brazil and other persons who really need help. So he was very good. He went to visit us in Boa Vista on January 21st. He went to Boa Vista to see up close, to meet our children who are suffering malnutrition, illness, and hunger. So he really went there to get a close-up look 
in order to figure out what he's going to do. That is the positive work that he's doing against the illegal miners who have been destroying our rivers, killing our fish, and allowing for the expansion of malaria, flu, parasites, and other diseases that have been brought in by the illegal miners and which are destroying our health. So I am a friend of him. I've known him for a long time. He already resolved other situations such as the Raposa Serra do Sol. So he is continuing to help us. Yanomami in Boa Vista, we really need him. Can you talk about what this raiding of the illegal gold miners by the government, uh, what actually has taken place? How is the government uh, cutting off their supplies to allow them to um, devastate the area of the Anamami? Well, I will, I will explain. Well, let me explain. I'm going to explain about the removal of the invaders who are engaged in illegal mining. They have been here for a long time, practically eight years. During that time, no government has ever paid us any attention. So the president of Brazil, he is fulfilling the role that he promised he would. He has sent security forces, federal police, IBAMA, the environmental agency, and this is all tied in with the Amazon forest, our land. But he is expelling them. The uh, miners should not be there. The miners who are there to take the wealth of this land, well, that's because they don't have land to work on. The government of Brazil has not given the, these miners any place to work in their own place. And it, my Yanomami people have been living here for many years, and they've come and are doing illegal work. No authority has allowed the miners to cause damage to our rivers and to our health. The health of our people, our traditional people, and not everyone speaks Portuguese. And the disease doesn't come by itself. The disease, disease comes with illegal mining. The illegal mining is not going to bring any good benefit to my Yanomami people. They have just brought a disease to kill my people, to leave my people sick and uh, hungry. Wherever the uh, illegal miners work, they're not taking care of my people. The miners are bringing disease. And the miners leave, but the disease stays. A disease has no border. There's no way to get rid of the disease. The miners leave, they go home, and they leave in the wake a dirty land, dirty water, pollution. And the uh, disease will remain as well. It doesn't go away straight away. So the Brazilian government is trying to resolve the problem. The problem is going to continue mistreating my people. So the miners are also exploited by the rich. They're sent by the authorities who have money. I want to say the miners are never going to get rich taking out my gold to, and killing my people, my brothers and sisters and children. You mentioned disease that the Yanomami people face, that the illegal gold miners bring in. 
But it's also mercury contamination. Um, uh, this issue of the use of mercury for gold mining um, needed to extract the gold. Over 90 percent of the Anamami have mercury levels in a number of communities that are far higher than the World or Health Organization recommends. Um, mercury is not found natively in the area. Can you talk about the effects of mercury poisoning on the children, on the Anamami people, adults as well? I'm going to explain. I don't know, or our forest peoples don't know of any illegal miner who doesn't use mercury. Mercury causes uh, illness in one's body. Mercury is poison. You can't eat mercury. You don't eat mercury. It harms our health. So everyone knows that mercury isn't food. Mercury isn't water. Uh, mercury is not for eating. Mercury, what you're asking about, well, the miners who work without uh, mercury aren't going to get the gold. They place the mercury where the gold is to separate it out, to clean it. And then the mercury stays in the water. And we, the community, we're downriver. The community is by the river's edge. So the Yanomami draw their water from the river for cooking, to drink, and for bathing. Our children like to bathe. Everyone likes to bathe, so they bathe. And then the mercury remains in their hair. It also enters the, through the ears and the eyes. And children, adults, and the elders are also getting mercury poisoning, not just the children. Adults are getting mercury poisoning as well. So uh, mercury is a business for other countries. It comes from far away, I think, from Japan and elsewhere where they began to use mercury. And then now it's killing my indigenous people. So they continue to use mercury. People are going to cook and drink water, and it's dirty water. The only thing is it goes uh, flows through the rivers in the Yanomami area. The mining is at the headwaters. Uh, the rivers that are contaminated are the Katrimani, the Apiayu, the Mukajai, and the Urarikuera. And it also impacts the Orinoco River in Venezuela and in the Anomama region as well, in the Maturaca. There's water that originates in uh, the mountains, and that's where the miners are, at the headwaters in the mountains. And so mercury is uh, harming our rivers, the rivers from which we drink water. That's what I wanted to explain for you to understand. And also, those of you who live in the cities, you're not drinking contaminated water. No. So that is very bad. It's very bad. And believe me, it's causing serious harm to our rivers. And as you say, it is a crime. Killing the forest, contaminating the rivers, contaminating our fish, and our children are contaminated by mercury. The children's hair is beginning to fall out. The illegal mining in the Yanomami territory is mistreating my people, my indigenous people. That never happened. We had never seen disease like this, where it's uh, so hard to heal. The mercury is going to continue in the holes that they have made, and it's going to create more illness. This is what the miners leave behind in causing this uh, harm to our planet Earth.
Davi Kopanawa Yanamami, uh, the new justice minister, has begun an investigation into the Bolsonaro government for crimes against humanity or uh, crimes of genocide against the Yanomami people. Do you think Bolsonaro should be charged with genocide? I would like that very much. I would like that very much. The Minister of Justice wants to prosecute him because of the way in which my Yanomami people have been mistreated and they have allowed disease to come in. They've allowed us to die. They've allowed 577 of our children to die. So you are the role of the Minister of Justice. That's who decides. I'm not going to decide because the crime that he created against my Yanomami people, well, it's the federal constitution that says that it is criminal to carry out genocide. So he could go to jail so that he could learn to respect my people so we could learn to respect the cultural heritage of my people and of all Brazil. Davi Kopanawa Yanomami, leader and shaman for the Yanomami people, one of the largest indigenous tribes in Brazil. He won the Right Livelihood Award in 2019 with the Hutukara Yanomami Association. We spoke to him last Thursday, just as Brazilian President Lula was coming to Washington to meet with President Biden. The meeting came just over a month after supporters of Brazil's former president, far-right Jair Bolsonaro attempted a coup by violently attacking the Supreme Court and the Brazilian Congress in Brazil's capital, Brasilia. This week, Bolsonaro announced plans to return to Brazil in March to lead the opposition. He's been living in Florida since December. We'll be posting our full interview with Davi Copanawa Yanomami in Portuguese next week. Happy birthday to Neil Shabata. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.